Today I'm going to be reading from John 21, 1 through 19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples, after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. For the last few weeks, um, we have been going on a journey through different accounts in the Gospels, taking a close look at intimate conversations between Jesus and certain individuals. And this is a sermon series that, you know, we've been going through for the last three weeks, and it's titled Conversations with Jesus. And it has been quite, you know, eye-opening to see how Jesus lovingly, yet truthfully, he interacts with each kind of person. 
So in week one, for example, we talked about Jesus interacting with the woman with the issue of blood. And so we see how he lovingly welcomed that interruption. He was on his way to heal somebody else. And basically this woman was you know, daring enough to creep up behind him and grab the hem of his cloak. She was that desperate to see his healing power at work in her life and how Jesus so lovingly welcomed that interaction and that interruption. And he gave her not just a restored body, but also restored dignity and restored mind as well. That was the first week. And then on week two, we had Pastor JP. He led us through the passage of Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman at the well. The one with five husbands and she was living, the person that she was living with wasn't even her husband. And far from avoiding that kind of quote-unquote unclean woman... Uh, Far from avoiding being seen publicly with her, far from shaming her, far from condemning her, far from berating her, he invites her to something better. He invites her to something that will truly satisfy. Hey, you're looking for something. I I can tell. You're looking for it in husband number one, husband number two, number three, number four, number five, and now the person that you're living with as well. You're never going to find it. You can go to husband 20 if you want, but what you're looking for, you're not going to find in husbands. You can only find that in me. And so that was week number two. Then last week was week number three. We looked at how Jesus interacted with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, with the religious elite, and how he lovingly fought for their souls. How he didn't sidestep a difficult conversation, but he exposed their self-righteousness and their self-importance and their self-deception in order to give them the freedom that they were actually looking for. And so those were the three first three weeks in our sermon series. And today, as Mikal read for us, we're going to be looking at Jesus' interaction with Peter the fisherman. Now, we're very familiar with the story of Peter. And this particular instance that we're zooming in on today, it's not just any old interaction with, between Jesus and Peter. It's after he's denied Jesus three times in his greatest moment of need, and it was probably Peter's greatest moment of shame. At first sight, it might look like a pretty straightforward interaction. Peter's just getting restored into ministry. Jesus is kind of like putting his arm around him, he's like, there, there, all right, do better next time, we're good, you know? It wasn't just as simple as that, it was actually a whole lot more profound than that. The first thing we need to think about is that what Peter did, in fact, what all the disciples did, right? What Peter did, what Thomas did, what James did, what Andrew did, what each and every disciple did was no worse than what Judas, the other disciple, did. It was no worse. Sometimes in our mind, when we think about all the disciples, the one bad apple is Judas, right? It's like, if you wanted to name your kid a biblical name, you would never call him Judas, right? I've actually met a Judas before. I don't know what their parents were thinking. But so you think about disciples 1 through 11, they're like, oh, they're, they're good, but they're not, you know, they're not great, but they're not as bad as this one bad apple that's Judas. But actually, what every single disciple did, it wasn't in a different level. It wasn't in a different order than what Judas did. They all sold out. They all jumped ship. 
They all were after their own survival and saved their own skin. They all bounced the moment Jesus was arrested and then he was tortured, interrogated, humiliated, and later nailed to a cross to die a slow and painful death. So we need to be very clear that there were no heroes that day. They were all on the same boat, all 12 disciples. There was not one that was righteous that day. But let me tell you this. What sets Peter and Judas apart was this burning question that comes to us in the midst of our worst failure. And it is this. Will we receive the forgiveness of Christ? That is the one thing that sets them apart. That's the only difference between a Peter and a Judas. Will we receive the forgiveness of Christ? Will we allow ourselves to be restored? Will we humble ourselves and allow ourselves to be cleansed? Will we allow ourselves to be redeemed? Judas didn't. And he literally hung himself and he did it in shame and condemnation. Peter, Peter did. And he humbled himself before Christ and allowed himself to be forgiven and restored. That is the one difference between someone with the destiny of Peter and someone with the destiny of Judas. Now my question to you is, have you ever failed someone really badly? I know we're not all perfect, and I know sooner or later we're going to fail somebody, right? Usually it's people that we really care about, people that we're very close to. It might be family. Usually family is where we let our unfiltered selves kind of be shown. Usually it's with people that we're most close to that we allow to see the uglier parts of ourselves. Have you ever experienced letting someone down to the point where afterwards you can't even look at them in the eye, where you know you're wrong, where you know even when you're called out, you still didn't own up to what you did? In those moments of really intense pain and shame when you can't look someone in the eye. The question for us today is, what is the Christian life after failure? Because sometimes we think, look, I did a lot of bad things when I wasn't a Christian, but now that I'm a Christian, I have no excuse. Like, you can do that when you're not a Christian, when you don't know Christ. But what happens when you are a Christian and still you fail and still you sin and still you wrong somebody? What then? What happens then? You feel like when, back then I didn't know any better. I didn't know God. I didn't have the Bible. I didn't have community. I didn't have accountability. Of course, I would do the things that I did. But now I have no excuse. Now I better know what I'm doing. Now I really, you know, have better stay in line and, you know, better, you know, act the way that I need to act and never step out of line. Otherwise, there's going to be no forgiveness for me here. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. As a believer of Christ, as a believer of Christ, we need his grace every day. As a believer of Christ, we need his forgiveness every day. It's not just back then when we didn't know him. It is for today. As Christ believers, we need his grace and we need his forgiveness. So we enter into the story after Peter had, quote unquote, failed and failed like terribly, like, like, what do you call that? Like, 
Anyway, like, like a big explosion, not like a small little failing, but like really everybody and their mom knew exactly how he failed. He failed at being a disciple of Jesus. And also in the moment where Jesus calls him out, he was actually failing at being even a fisherman, something that he was well-trained to do. After a whole night of fishing, he's like, oh my gosh, I failed at being a disciple of Jesus, but at the very least I thought I could go back to fishing and I could at least succeed there. And at the end of a long night, I'm not being able to catch any fish, like no fish. For like, imagine you're fishing an experienced fisherman. Imagine you had fished for 20 years and you've watched your father do it. And then you took on the nets and then you became a fisherman. And you knew exactly what you're doing. You weren't fishing out in the open sea. You were fishing in a lake. You know that the Sea of Galilee is actually kind of like a big lake. Like, you know, like the fish have, where else would they go, right? And so it's like, it's like it should be fairly easy at least to get one fish. But after an entire night of feeling not just as a failure as a disciple, but feeling a failure as a fisherman, this is when Jesus interrupts his story. I love it how Christ barges in when we need him the most. When our self-condemnation has brought us so low that we don't even know who we are anymore. And in the midst of that, Jesus is the one who comes to us instead of the other way around. When you wrong somebody, the last thing, the hardest thing probably to do is actually approach them and be like, hey, that was my bad. Like, hey, I hope you can forgive me. Like, hey... I acknowledge that what I did to you was wrong. That's probably the hardest thing ever. And Jesus, in his kindness, knowing just how the self-condemnation weighs heavy on his shoulders, Jesus is the one to approach him. And far from just making it a, you know, hey, we, we good, right? Let, let's just, you know, let's move forward. Let's forget what happened. Like, you know, like everybody kind of falls once in a while. And let's just move on with our lives. And I hope you can do better next time. It wasn't just a simple interaction like that. Jesus is actually going after something so much more profound. The first thing that Jesus does in this interaction is he restores the relationship. He doesn't waste any time. He comes and restores. He doesn't wait for an apology. He doesn't wait for him to kind of stew in his guilt for a little bit. He comes and restores the relationship. And the way he does that is he looks across at the failed fisherman, probably like shielding his eyes in the morning sun. And he's like, hey, do you have any fish? They're like, no, no, no. And he's like, okay, throw it on the other side. And then they get a bunch of fish. And they're like, oh my gosh, it's Jesus. And then they jump out. And he's like, come have breakfast with me this scene i I love this have you guys watched this is the second time i'm quoting this i'm not getting any royalties from this have you guys watched forrest gump forrest gump yeah right run forrest run (gasps) no is that generational (laughs) oh my gosh anyway wow everybody go home today and watch forrest gump it's a bit long but trust me it's worth your time anyway there's this one scene where Forrest Gump is on a shrimping boat and he's failed at being a shrimping captain, right? And then one day he's like, oh man, I don't know how much I can do this. And he looks across the horizon and he sees Lieutenant Dan. Yes, I don't know. I'm assuming that was Dan. Lieutenant Dan. And he's like, Lieutenant Dan? Lieutenant Dan! And he goes like this and then he just like, 
falls into the water and just swims out to him. It's like very similar to that. I, I can imagine Peter being kind of like a forest scum in that way. It's like the excitement gets the best of him and the boat wouldn't take him fast enough. He just jumps into the water and gets to where Jesus is. This is what happens when you failed someone and the guilt is eating you up inside and the shame weighs heavy upon you. And you know what, that you deserve what you got. And Jesus so graciously welcomes and restores that relationship. Because what do we do when we failed someone? Most of us do this thing where we punish ourselves. We actually do it very well. We're very good at this. We actually punish ourselves. We mope. We put ourselves down. We condemn ourselves. We speak to ourselves saying we got what we deserved. We don't deserve forgiveness. It, it ought to hurt. And although God brings conviction and he brings repentance, he is not the author of self-condemnation and shame. He is the God who brings conviction unto restoration. There's an end goal there. If you find yourself moping and sulking and punishing yourself, you know, and there's... And you're not being led into restoration. You're not being led into repentance. You're not led into life-giving change. Then that is not of the Lord. That is your doing. And maybe even the enemy is doing. Just bringing yourself down. There's no way out of this. You've gone too far. There's no way to restore this. Even if you said you're sorry, it won't really change anything. That is not the voice of God. That is the voice of the enemy. But in the midst of the failure... Jesus calls out to the disciple that has already resigned to a life of living with their failure. They said, I'm no good as a disciple. Maybe I'll be able to salvage my fishing career, right? He was the very person they betrayed, the person they abandoned. He calls out to them, prepares a meal for them after a long night of fruitless toil and restores the relationship. In many ways, this is very, I don't know if, you know, if anybody in the room, you know, if you're Korean, you grew up with Korean parents, this is very Korean. How do Koreans say I'm sorry? Food. That's how they do it. How do Korean moms say, uh, are you doing okay? <laughs> right? Right? It, does, it has nothing to do with like, did you actually put, you know, a, a, a thing of sustenance in your mouth? Did you eat? It's like, how are you doing? That's how you say it. Right? How does somebody say, you know, uh, uh, hey, it's all okay, we're all good? Food. This is very Korean in many ways. That's the way that you restore relationship. It has less to do about the actual food, but the communion that comes around the food. That is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, come, eat with me, spend time with me, lock eyes with me. I still love you. Our relationship hasn't changed, even through your failure. Even though you feel like you are unworthy of my time and unworthy of being called my disciple, nothing's changed between us. I still love you. Come and have breakfast with me. In fact, in the whole of Scripture, we see over and over again, this invitation, Jesus constantly inviting people into this communion, into this fellowship. In John 1, he says, come and see. In Matthew 11, he says, come and learn. In, Matthew, in Mark 6, he says, come and rest. In John 21, he says, come and dine, come and eat with me. Matthew 25, he says, come and inherit. Every time it's come, just come to me. 
Yes, I know that you did something wrong. Just come. Let's, let's chat. Let's commune. Let's, let's talk heart to heart. And that is a restoration of relationship that can only be done through God. Jesus is just so gracious in this moment of utter guilt and utter failure to reach out and invite him into a restored relationship. And maybe some of us in the room, we feel like failures in some ways. And it's in the midst of that, if we were to take the time to listen, that we will still be able to hear the small voice of God saying, put your nets down, put your toil down, put your condemnation down, and come and dine with me. How often do we need to hear that? Sometimes we live lives that are so busy, so overwhelming, so like distracted, and you feel like you're failing at 20 things at the same time. And it's in those moments that the voice of God comes to you and says, lay those things down for a bit and come and spend time with me. Hey, you failed at reading your Bible for the last two years. That's okay. Lay down that guilt and just come to me. Hey, you didn't forgive that person even though you said you would. Lay that down and come dine with me. Over and over and over again, whenever it feels like we are disqualifying ourselves from meeting with Jesus, we're like, after what I've done, there's no way he wants anything to do with me. After what I said, there's no way that I can actually sit with him and be close with him. And Jesus says, put those things down and come and dine with me. Nothing you do can break this relationship. I still love you. You're still mine. Come and dine with me. Come and have breakfast. So Jesus restores the relationship. The second thing he does is he renews Peter's confidence. He renews his confidence. Now, we've all experienced this in some way. When we failed somebody, we're like, there's no way I can ever trust myself ever again. Like, there's no way that next time I'm going to do the right thing. There's no way that, you know, and you begin to really doubt yourself. You begin to, you know, in a self-deprecating kind of way, you say like, oh my gosh, I'm just not worthy of anybody's trust. Oh my gosh, I shouldn't be entrusted with anything. Oh my gosh, I, I don't even deserve to be in a relationship with anybody. Oh my gosh, I'm going to fail the next person too. And in the midst of that, he had lost utter confidence. Jesus comes in and he renews it. Now, what we've experienced in our lives, it doesn't need to be at the caliber of, you know, Peter's betrayal. But we've all failed someone before. We've all hurt someone before. We betrayed someone's trust. We have done what is wrong because we are fallible. We are far from perfect. We are broken. We are sinful. We get jealous we get intimidated or we get embarrassed or we get resentful, or we get prideful, we get scared, we get passive aggressive, we get forgetful, we get selfish, we get flaky. All these things are just the common human experience. And in Peter's case, there are many theories of why Peter went back to fishing at this point in his life. But my guess is that for him, he said, all right, I abandoned him and I failed him in his greatest moment of need. And I even saw the empty tomb. So I know he's alive. He must be Lord. I know who he is. But now I have no longer faith in 
what I'm able to do, who I am. And I need that faith restored. For three years before this moment, Peter had seen with his very own eyes this man, Jesus, heal the sick, raise the dead, deliver the demonized, stump religious scholars, prophesy over strangers, multiply bread, walk on water, calm the storm, literally like shine out of his skin. I don't know how you do that on the Mount of Transfiguration. He had seen with his very own eyes Jesus doing all of that. And so he was, at that point, before his betrayal, he was 100% confident that he would stay loyal to him. After what I've seen, there's no way I'd ever turn on you, Jesus. After what I've experienced for three years, there's no way that I'm ever going to abandon you. I am your number one guy. I will fight for you. I will sacrifice for you. Hey, if it comes down to it, I'll even kill somebody for you. That's what he was trying to do on the Mount of Olives, right? When Jesus was getting arrested and Peter cut off someone's ear. He wasn't aiming for the ear. You know that, right? He wasn't like, oh, let me slice off an ear. No, he was aiming for the head. He was ready to kill somebody. And he was a very poor swordsman because he was a fisherman. And so he got the ear instead of actually the head. He would even kill somebody for Jesus. That was the level of his loyalty. He had explicitly and insistently told Jesus that even if everyone betrayed him, he would never do that. And then when Jesus told him, hey, actually... You're not going to deny me just once. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Never in a million years did he imagine that he would be capable of doing that. And he never imagined that all it would take would be a small servant girl by a fire in a courtyard as Jesus was getting questioned by authorities to get him to turn on him and deny him. Maybe he was genuinely scared that he'd be next. Hey, they got my master, they're after me next. Maybe he was scared that the crowd would turn on him. Maybe he was scared that the authorities would seize him and flog him like they did his master. And he panicked. He got scared. He got shaken. He got spooked. He felt alone. He tried to save his own skin. Shoot, if Jesus was here, maybe he could save me. But I'm on my own now. I gotta save my own self. He denied knowing him. He abandoned him to his bloody fate. He ran away in shame and fear when Jesus needed him the most. And now, after Jesus had died and risen from the grave, maybe Peter finally believed that Jesus, yes, he is the son of God. Maybe finally clicked for him who this man actually was, but he didn't know himself anymore. All the bravado was gone. All the lofty claims of loyalty were gone. All the grand promises of everyone can turn their back on you, but I never will. All of that is gone. Now Spurgeon says it this way. They ate the bread and fish that morning. I doubt not in silent self-humiliation. Peter looked with tears in his eyes at that fire of coals, remembering how he stood and warmed himself when he denied his master. Thomas stood there wondering what he should have wondering that he should have dared to ask such proofs of a fact most clear. All of them felt that they could shrink into nothing in his divine presence since they had behaved so ill. Now it's in this context that Jesus asks this guilt-ridden fisherman, Simon, son of John, 
Do you love me more than... Now, there are two different words in the Greek, you know, that are used in this exchange, and there's a lot of theories of what that means, but we're actually not going to look at that today. What we are going to focus on today is the fact that Jesus, knowing Peter's heart, is drawing out a sincere profession of love and renewing his confidence. It's like Jesus was saying, I know that you love me. Do you know that you love me, even though you failed? Because right now in your mind, you're translating your failure into, I let him down. I must not love him. I abandoned him. I must not love him. I didn't do as, as I said I would. I must not love him. In, in your mind, you're translating that into, I guess I don't love you, Jesus. But Jesus is trying to draw out a sincere profession of love, a sincere confession of love that he already sees in Peter. Because though Peter didn't know this, Jesus knew that through his imperfections and through his failures, his love for him was still sincere. It's possible to love someone imperfectly but sincerely. And Jesus is drawing that out. If we are ever waiting for a magical day when we don't sin and don't let down Jesus to say that, okay, I think I love him, we're going to be waiting forever. That's not the test of love. The test of love is, is there sincerity? Is there substance behind it? You are going to fail. I am going to fail. We're all going to fail from time to time. But that cannot translate in our mind, oh man, I, I guess I just don't love Jesus. I guess this whole Christian thing was like, I just, just you know, like language. I guess I don't know what I was doing. I, I guess I thought I loved him, but I really didn't. We can't translate that in our minds. If that is a point on day two of being a Christian, of minute two of being a Christian, we would automatically assume, oh, we must not love Jesus. Because we will fail sooner or later, in big and in small ways. And if in our mind it's translating to, I must not love Jesus, then there's no future for us in our devotion to Christ. Jesus in his kindness draws out a desperate and humble and sincere profession of love from this broken man. Three times, Jesus asks him publicly. And three times, Peter says, I love you, to undo the three times he had denied him. Jesus gets Peter to say, you know that I love you three times. The last time saying, look, Jesus... I've seen you raise the dead. I've seen you read someone's mind. I've seen you do the impossible. Of course you know what's in my heart. You know all things. You know if I'm lying or if I'm exaggerating or whatnot. You know all things. You must know that I love you despite my failure. And until he verbalized that then, I don't know if he really knew that for himself. Because the voice of self-condemnation is just so strong in those moments. When you feel like there's no way, there's no way that I can love him if I did what I did. It is in that moment that Jesus draws out this profession of love. You know all things, Jesus. Despite my failure, despite my moments of weakness, despite my moments of sin, you know that I love you. How many of us need to hear that confession come from our mouths today? Man, God, I failed you this week. Man, I yelled at that person at work. 
Man, I, you know, I, I, I skipped out on this. Man, I wasn't patient with that person. Man, I told this person off this week. But through my weakness, you know all things. You know my heart. And you know that I love you. Right, Jesus? How many of us need to hear that from our mouths today? Often we need to say that. And sometimes Jesus makes us say that. Because until we verbalize that, the voice of self-condemnation is just so real and so tangible and so in your face. You need to counter that with a genuine profession of love. And so Jesus comes to this humble and broken fisherman and he restores his confidence. He says, hey, you didn't do it perfectly. Yeah, we're all going to acknowledge that. But you still love me. And I'm going to draw out that confession from your mouth today. He restores and renews his confidence. Lastly, Jesus redeems this fisherman's calling and purpose. Jesus redeems the purpose and calling. After Peter had disqualified himself, saying, look, I can't even stick with you, let alone lead this thing that you're about to birth called the church. Who am I to preach? (laughs) Who am I to do what you did? I'm automatically disqualified, and I know that, and now I'm going to resign my life to do something else. I'm going to settle for second best. There's nothing wrong with being a fisherman, by the way. That just wasn't his calling. That wasn't what Jesus had called him to do. If Jesus had called him to, hey, I've called you to be a fisherman, go be a fisherman for the glory of God, it would have been right for him to go back into fishing. But that's not what Jesus had said. He had said, drop your nets, now you're going to be a fisher of man. Come and follow me. That's what he said at the very beginning of the relationship, and now he's saying this to him when it's being restored as well. He's saying, come, follow me. It's so interesting that Jesus charges Peter with feeding his sheep and entrusts the pastoral ministry to him, not after he has proven to be capable, but when he has proven to be a mess apart from him. When he has proven to be dependent on him, not perfect, but loving him. In other words, what Peter couldn't be trusted with in his pride, Jesus would entrust to him in his humility. After he's fallen, after he's been restored, Jesus would entrust to him this mighty task of feeding his sheep and tending to his flock in his humility. This is one thing that we need to note in the original text. Follow me. It's, it's um, a present imperative. It literally translates to not just follow me, keep on following me. Keep doing it. It's continuous, a continuous action. It's not just follow me today, follow me for the next five minutes. It's keep on following me. Keep on doing this. Keep on getting back up and following me once again. Every time you fall, every time you fail, Every time you fall short, keep on following me. What you are unable to do in your strength, I am able to empower. Keep on following me. Jesus emphasized, look, these are my sheep. They're not your sheep. As a pastor, I know that very well. 
This is not my congregation. This is God's congregation. You belong to, not to me, you belong to Jesus. And Jesus emphasized to Peter, they were his sheep, and he was called to tend to them. Jesus restored Peter in the presence of the other disciples publicly after he had publicly denied him. And then Jesus challenges Peter to set his eyes on the work ahead. He's saying, hey, your failure is in the past. Restoration is in the present. Now let's talk about our future. There are things to be done. There's an assignment to be fulfilled. There's something that I'm entrusting to you. Don't spend the rest of your life in these guilt games. I have something to entrust to you. Let's talk about our future. There's work to be done together. Now here's a crazy thing. What Peter wasn't able to do on that day when Jesus was crucified, Peter was actually finally able to do at the end of his life. You know that Peter died a martyr's death? And he was also crucified. Maybe ringing through his mind was this, follow me. Okay, I'm going to follow him as I lead these sheep. I'm going to follow him as I plant these churches. And I'm going to follow him all the way to a cross as well. And what I wasn't able to do back then in my own pride, Jesus is going to help me do at the end of my life. Peter died a martyr's death. And when he was faced with his execution, he even said, I'm not worthy of being crucified in the same way that Jesus, my Lord, was. Crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy. And so Peter died a gruesome death. And we see how Jesus was true to his promise. And Peter was true to follow him and keep following him and keep following and keep following him all the way to the very end. That is the story of Peter. And I'm praying that that's a story for many of us. Maybe we won't have these grand moments of failure that are so public. Maybe we'll fail a million times in very small and private ways. But regardless, may that same heart be in us, that we allow ourselves to be forgiven, to be restored into relationship, to be renewed in confidence, not in an arrogant kind of way, but in a humble kind of confidence, and allow Jesus to restore that sense of purpose and calling over our lives as well. Jesus is able to do it if we allow him to do that. I want to close with this. A few years ago, I, I went to visit Israel. And I visited Israel, you know, many times. The first time I went there, I was very, like, set on, I'm going to go to every possible place where, like, this is where this happened, and this is where this happened, this is where this happened. And I had a missionary friend who was taking me around who lives in Israel. And she took me to the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And we parked there, and, you know, we, we got out, and we were just, you know, walking over. Like, it wasn't sand. It was, like, these stones. And we went to the, the edge of the, the water. And I was like, so what happened here? And she said, this is where Peter was restored to ministry. And it was so interesting, because if she hadn't told me that, it felt like in any kind of place. 
felt very ordinary. It felt very mundane. Like if she hadn't told me that that's what happened here, I would never have known. Obviously, it's a guess, right? I don't know if it's like that's a specific stone that Jesus stepped on while he was calling them, you know. But they've, you know, they've, over history, they've said this is where it is. And they even, you know, built a chapel there. In the very front of the chapel, there's a stone where they say, this is probably where Jesus built a fire and cooked the fish and invited them to have breakfast. This is where Peter was restored into ministry. What I found so interesting about that, it was, it was such a mundane kind of place. It wasn't like, I expected for that kind of place to have like fireworks, you know? Like, whoa, like I feel like something is very, very, something very special and sacred happened here. And yet it was just one of those places that I could have overlooked if I didn't know what had happened there. Here's the thing. This kind of restoration unto Jesus happens in the most ordinary places. Sometimes it doesn't feel like fireworks. Sometimes it feels like it's in the most unexpected, mundane places in your everyday life. It could be at a subway stop. It could be while you're waiting to get into work. It could be in your cubicle desk. It could be, I don't know, while you're commuting to church. It could be anywhere. That's where restoration takes place. That's where Jesus reaches out to us. It's not always in these magical, you know, monumental moments in life where this happens. It's in the everyday. It's in the ordinary. It, it might be later this afternoon as you're making your way home where you hear the voice of God saying, do you love me? Like, I know you're not perfect, but, but is there love there still? You might be able to hear the voice of God saying, come and dine with me. Hey, you're commuting right now. You're in a, in a crowded bus right now. Let's take this moment and commune with me. It might be in that moment where Jesus speaks to you about your purpose and your calling once again. And he restores to you something that you thought you had lost forever. It is in those ordinary, mundane places that Jesus chooses to interrupt and Jesus chooses to reach out and speak to us. It is there where he says, I know you've failed, and I know you've been distracted, I know you've been anxious, I know you've been overwhelmed, I know you feel like a failure a lot of times, but do you love me? And if so, follow me. Keep on following me. Don't let the fear and the guilt and the what-ifs keep you from following me. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. I am here. You'll fail from time to time, but I'll keep calling out to you. I'll keep drawing you to myself. I'll give you the forgiveness that you need, the peace of mind that you need. I'll give you the strength and the encouragement that you need. I'll keep loving and serving you. I'll keep leading you in faithfulness. I'll restore the relationship when it's broken. I'll renew your confidence when it's shot. And I'll redeem your purpose and calling when you lose your way. I'm going to...